Welcome to the Ben Don't Break podcast. I'm Aaron Schweitzer, your host, along with Central Oregon's most electrifying reporter, Laurel Bronze. This podcast is powered by The Source Weekly, Ben's locally owned newspaper. Our guest today is Todd Heisler, Rivers Conservation Director for Central Oregon Land Watch. Todd grew up on a river outside of Cincinnati, Ohio. He is an economics major at Colby College in Waterville, uh, Maryland. Is that it, Todd? Maine. 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 M.E. got me. And began working in conservation from the business side. Worked in D.C. for 22 years for the World Wildlife Fund and Conservation International. Worked for the Deschutes River Conservancy for 15 years where he concentrated on restoring flows to the Deschutes River. We wanted to have Todd on our podcast this week because while the election is garnering everyone's attention, there are still other important issues moving forward. one of which centers around the Deschutes Bays and Habitat Conservation Plan, which will be released in November. However, before we dive into that, uh, Todd, maybe give us a little background. Why did you become interested in conservation? Well, that's a great question. Thank you for having me on today. It's a real pleasure to be part of uh, your podcast. And Thanks. This, uh, this is, this is going to be a lot of fun. Um, so I grew up on a river, as you mentioned, in Ohio, um, but very young age, got involved in whitewater paddling and hiking, backpacking. By the age of 20, I had done a major expedition in Alaska um, and three weeks in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, which, of course, the Trump administration is attacking these days to, to drill on the um, coastal plain which has the largest migration of wildlife in North America, the porcupine herd of caribou, caribou, which we got to see among many other things at the age of 20. So um, I think that really launched me um, kind of physically and spiritually into protecting our natural resources and our environment. And I've been fortunate enough all this time to be able to work in the field. And you, you spent your some formative years in Washington, D.C., uh, getting up close on environmental politics. What did you learn uh, from that experience? Well, you know, surprisingly, I didn't learn too much about domestic politics because I worked for two international organizations. So what I did learn about conservation in that regard, though, is what was so very different from domestic politics is when you do conservation work or try to do conservation work in other countries, you can't just show up and, you know, with an attitude and say, we're going to protect your forests and we're going to save all these things. So sort of by the very nature of the business, it has to be pretty collaborative and you have to work, we call it kind of at the grassroots level out in the villages where the people are, but also in the capital cities with the politicians. And ultimately you were trying to make an argument to less developed countries that you can sustainably manage your resources while protecting them. Um, and protection of those resources is a very important thing too. So I think that's where, my, where I got started on the collaborative side of the conservation field uh, in DC. Does it matter when you're dealing with, um, or how do you feel about like, Back then you would have been dealing with much larger budget, more available resources. Yep. You're in a smaller town here. How does that change the dynamic? Well, as I like to say, the closer you get to the ground, the more complicated things get. <laughs> so it was actually, you know, with a $70 million budget or whatever, I think that was it when I left um, and working in Washington DC and traveling abroad, you're working at a pretty conceptual level. 
and you're making arguments, you're creating strategies, um, you're helping governments develop policies, but you're at a pretty high altitude. Um, and so in some ways it's, it's easier. Um, it's, it's often harder to measure your progress in a country in which you don't really have a whole lot of control, but I think the work itself is more conceptual by nature. You come, the closer you get to the ground, now you're, in, you're into local politics. You're in, and in water, as we know, there's right. hardly anything as complicated and potentially divisive as that. So what I found is going from what's $70 million budget to I think the biggest budget I managed at the DRC was around 6 million. Um, it was every bit as hard, probably a lot harder just because of all the local factors that one has to take into consideration to get real conservation results on the ground. Yeah, that's somewhat of the same thing I tell people who are coming to do journalism here in Central Oregon as they move from a big city where uh, politics and, and uh, journalism is very personal here. You, you, you're going to meet the person you wrote about. You're not going to be able to stay in your ivory tower. So Exactly. Very true. Um, so the Wikiup Dam has been uh, very prevalent with regard to its, its current state and the, and the drought we're in. And uh, images of that thing have been in, incredible to to see, especially if you've lived here a long time and you've mm -hmm. you've watched it, it degrade to the point where it's at. Um, can you start? Can you describe how the flows are the wiki up are managed and give people some insight as to you know a jumping off here of like how does something how do we arrive at something like this? It looks like a river now. It looks like <laughs> probably like it used to. Yes. Okay. I'll see if I can make this as simple as possible. Let's just start with the, there's six irrigation districts that divert from the Deschutes River. They divert what we call natural flow and they divert stored water that is stored in one of three reservoirs, Grain Prairie, Wikiup, and Crescent. Um, and so that essentially by around the turn of the 20th century, we had appropriated all of the water in the winter or the summer, because the stored water, of course, is stored in the winter, it captures the winter water. And in the summer, you're getting the water rights that are flowing in the, in the river naturally. So the problem actually started 120 years ago when we massively overappropriated the resource. And by that, I mean that at any one time in the summer, particularly in the hot summer months, there are far more water rights that were issued by the state of Oregon for irrigators to divert from the river, then there's actually water in the river. Um, and they are that organized along a very, you know, a priority system that maybe we'll get into a little bit later. So the way it works is you, and we're about to have this, we're in the middle of October, the irrigators will begin to turn off. Um, and then starting November, um, we essentially turn off much of the river um, at the top and store water in those reservoirs. So that creates a very big problem below those dams, um, wherever they occur. And then in, the, in April, we turn the gates, we open the gates, um, and now we close off the river below the irrigation diversions. So we release water from the reservoirs, we use the rivers to transport the water to the diversions, we divert virtually all the water from the river, it's about 90% of the water from the river, um, into these large canals. And we create 
The same problem that we created below the dams in the winter, now we've created in the summer below the diversions. As I like to say, every year is a drought year below an irrigation diversion. Um, <laughs> because we've basically taken 90% of the water. Um, so this, this is all according to state law, um, but it's very complicated because you have six different districts all competing for the water. Um, and so what you have now, how Wikiup can get into this situation is we've had drought, we have species issues, you know, we have, we have both bull trout that are threatened, Oregon spotted frog, mid-Columbia steelhead. So as, we, as the conditions in our rivers have degraded, we've created more threatened or endangered species with which the irrigators have to be concerned. Um, it's driven by their own actions of, as I just explained, taking virtually all the water out of the river. And now this is exacerbated by a 10-year trend of drought, which we all believe is, is climate change that we're experiencing today. Um, so you've got these two factors, species and climate driving change. But th this summer was a really good example because if you've got six districts all competing for water, none of them want to take any less. And they're all actually all trying to get as much of it as they can. It's that well, and, and Todd, isn't it? I mean, the priorities for the, um, the water, I mean, they were established hundreds of years ago. Or right, at 1900. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. And so they don't take into account any, they're not flexible in that things have changed. Uh, and how, uh, what's the chance that there is any kind of negotiation on that? How, how strict are those laws from 100 years ago? Well, the, they have shown very little um, interest in, in really negotiating. What they have said is come build us big projects, mainly piping main, main canals with public money and we will do some restoration work um, and because that's the form of conservation that we accept. And those types of projects actually don't affect the underlying water rights. So they will do business with you if you really don't touch the water rights and allow them to be delivered as they, did, as they were 120 years ago. So, let's so it's really that lack of flexibility that and now sort of the sense of there's a scarce resource and we've got six different entities kind of all vying for it. No, the answer is that those six districts actually come together and say, we've got change. How do we manage the change? How do we share water differently among these different priority dates? And how do we also improve our infrastructure? Because those canal, some of those canal piping projects are actually quite good, but they can't be done and they can't serve as the only way in which we conserve water and move water around the basin to meet all so these new needs. And frankly, growing cities are a need too. I mean, we I'm don't necessarily gonna... like to see all this growth, but it's here and cities have to have water too. Sure. So you've been really critical of uh, the hobby farm industry. Can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, the difference between having a lifestyle farm and a commercial farm and how this plays into the conversation about these historical water rights? That, that's a great question. Um, so it's so it's it's hobby. It's not necessarily just hobby farmers versus commercial farmers. It's senior water right holders versus junior water right holders. Now those two things happen to align that our biggest 
commercial farmers are in the Culver Madras area and they have the most junior water rights. And those who hold the most senior water rights, the largest of which is Central Oregon Irrigation District, in their district, and I heard their manager the other day say, I've got, I've got a third of my patrons watering grass. I've got a third of them in sort of 4-H clubs, small, very small, onesie twosie, up to 10 acres of, of rural lifestyle farming. And then I've got a third that's in probably commercial, much more grazing cattle production, and maybe a few crops, but there's hardly any crops being grown in the Central Oregon Irrigation District. So if you take that at its face value, you've got two thirds of the water that's being diverted by a very senior water right holder that's going to what we might say is a, a less valuable form of agriculture, um, not food production and not really um, uh, economic. We, the, in Deschutes County, there's negative $25 million a year produced in agriculture. So it tells you we're not really in the business of producing products and, and, um, and crops in Deschutes County in particular, because it's really dominated by lifestyle farms. So I don't begrudge the lifestyle farms. In fact, we love the open space. We'd rather see a lifestyle farm than a bunch of condominiums, right? Or, or, or a destination resort. Well, and Todd, but, alpacas are very cute. Yeah. <laughs> they're they're yeah, just yeah. endearing animals to see out there. Right. The problem <laughs> is the senior water right doesn't create any incentive for those folks to actually use their water more judiciously. They've never had to. For 120 years, they turn on the spigot in um, April, the water flows, they get the water kind of no matter how bad their infrastructure is or no matter what their irrigation methods are, COAD doesn't run out of water. So it's hard to convince them with a system like that why they should change because that costs money, right? So- Well, and I don't think people understand that when we talk about delivery methods, like for commercial farms, a lot of them are, they're running very efficient drip irrigations. They're, like you said, they're junior water, right? But here in, in many places, they're still flood irrigating. They're still opening opening the pipe and letting it run over every square inch of the land. Exactly, I believe the numbers are 25% of Central Oregon Irrigation District is still flooded, flood irrigated. And that's a district of over 50,000 acres. So do the math, it's a lot of acreage, just water flowing over the landscape. So it's really, really very inefficient. And they would say we are entitled to use the water that way. And I say, no, you're not, it's wasteful. You should put, the law says you have to put your water to beneficial use without waste. That doesn't mean putting the maximum amount of water that you're entitled to on the land. It means putting the appropriate amount of water on the land for what it is that you're growing. But there's really so little regulation or enforcement of any of this kind of, of, of rule or regulation or statute in the state. And that's created this dynamic of the haves and the have nots. So to your point, the haves, a bunch of them, are the hobby farmers. All we want them to do is use less water, not take all their water away. We'd like them to stay rural. We don't, have, we don't begrudge their lifestyle at all. It's just invest in their properties to use the water um, more efficiently. Well, and, and go ahead, Laurel. Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, aren't they disincentivized, really, to save water? Don't they lose out if they 
use less than the year before the way it's set up now? Um, they theoretically they could. Okay. So there is this, if you don't put your water to use, um, uh, for five consecutive years, you're subject to forfeiture of the water, right? So first in practice, it's hardly ever regulated. It's a complaint driven system. Water resources isn't really set up to actually do any of that. And actually in the late nineties, there was a, there was an amendment to that, which, which basically to, to try to get around that, which says, no, you can use less water and not, and not lose your water right. So that's the provision that we really want to emphasize is if, you know, if you have a five acre feet per acre water right, which means you can put a five, five feet of standing water on an acre, that's the volume of water if you can visualize that. Um, you don't have to use all that water. You could use one or two, two and a half, and you're not gonna lose your water right. That's what we're trying to get them to do. And we actually believe since the incentives are so backwards, since they have a, a uh, perverse because of their senior water right, that it will, it'll take some incentives. So we'd like to create a water bank that offers them, that says, well, if we paid you to lose less water, would you do that? And all the recent studies, including the one that was just completed by the irrigators themselves, demonstrates that irrigators would use less water in an incentive-based system. So all we gotta do is get that water bank back going and it'll make a huge difference in how we conserve and use our water in the basin. Todd, one of the, uh, one of the things obviously that's a big part of the river landscape right now, especially when it comes to your irrigators is piping the piping of the canals. And um, I think there's been, uh, as they're, as they're investing more in of taxpayer dollars into these type of, of projects, it feels to me like there is a greater awareness in the general community now of what it means to, to be doing this, to be investing in these, in these canals and piping. Prior to some of these larger piping projects, um, it seemed like, well, this is a small group of NIMBYs who are losing a water in their backyard and and why do we care and now that the price tag is starting to crest you know quarter 25 million 30 million go upwards I feel like people are paying more attention and what are your thoughts about the economic versus the environmental um, base for these projects um, so the infrastructure in these districts is 120 years old it does need to be upgraded, right? So I think that's a basic understanding we need to all have. But the question is, how do we spend the scarce resources that we have when we have a very urgent problem? We just talked about climate change and species. So I've had conversations with the manager saying, it's great that you have an improvement plan. It's wonderful that you have an infrastructure improvement plan. You needed to do that a long time ago. It's great you have it now. It could take you 50 years. Maybe, maybe it's your next 100-year plan. That's great because there are great benefits to them managing that water more efficiently with much less seepage loss um, and just uh, greater efficiency on the delivery side. And it will also help us to uh, use our incentives and our water banking more effectively because in a leaky system, it's hard for the water to carry to the end 
if they're leaking a lot of water in, in transmission. So what I've argued for is a smart, you know, sort of integrated form of this, where you look out and you see where can we get sort of the most bang for our buck, and let's do some cost-effective infrastructure development, and let's do some water marketing and some on-farm conservation as well. And I think my, my gripe and my beef today is that the districts are putting really all of their eggs in the large canal piping basket. And they're just barely starting. If you go to them, they'll say, well, we're doing that, we're doing that. It's just barely starting to get a foothold in the districts to think more about on-farm conservation and um, water marketing. And those two should be leading the way so that we can actually have answers in the next decade that will be meaningful for the river. Todd, uh, really do, do you feel like with those kind of federal dollars that you could incentivize or even pay for local farmers within the districts to give up their water right or go to a system within their property that might otherwise have the same amount of water value or economic value? So there's a broad set of funders. I don't know that, and, and so when you go to the, when you go to, to NRCS, which is the federal agency that's now working with this public law 566 that Merkley helped establish, helped, it's an old law that he helped um, get some, some authorization for new funding into. Then there's a, they have to do a watershed plan, which with NRCS that dictates the scope and what can happen. So you, had they tried, argued to make that broader, we would have had a bunch more tools in the tool chest that that federal money could have been used for. But they made their arguments very narrowly around canal pipe, main canal piping, essentially saying, this is what we control, this is what we can do, et cetera, et cetera. So there are other forms of funding that can fund um, water marketing. Um, and there are plenty of, there's plenty of funding in the farm bill every year for on farm work. Um, right. So it's just a matter of where there's a will, there's a way and getting people to really focus on it and have a strategy and then using our congressional delegation to go get those dollars um, and use them in, a, in the most cost-effective way. The water marketing is from the, the Deschutes Basin study analyzed the different um, conservation approaches. The water marking was one-tenth of the cost of large canal piping. So wow. again, you just have to, all of them need to be in the mix. It is a complicated topic, but we really need to greatly um, encourage and emphasize the movement of water from district to district and in stream through financial incentives. Todd, can you tell us about um, your new role with Central Oregon Land Watch and how that's different from what you're doing with the Deschutes River Conservancy? Yes, I can. Um, so as you know, the Central Oregon Land Watch is an advocacy organization. It's really one of the few in Central Oregon that's really just focused on Central Oregon advocacy issues from both land and water. There's others more regionally or in Eastern Oregon, but we're pretty focused right here. Um, and what's been very refreshing is that I can, instead of having to think about 
or try to represent the multiple interests that were on my board of directors at the Deschutes River Conservancy, now I can just focus on what the river needs and we can really start to speak for the river and the fish and wildlife and all the aquatic species and that whole ecosystem. And it's important to have that freedom because when you're on a board with all of those interests there, you know, if you take only the river's interest point of view, you're gonna get a lot of pushback from the other interests. Um, and that organization's a great one and they do good work and there's a lot of great projects to be done um, in cooperation with the districts. In fact, like a water bank, you're not, we're not gonna do one of those unless we have an organization that's positioned to work with them to, to actually execute that. But our, my role is really to argue for those policies that kind of change and to make the public more aware of what can actually happen because it's such a complicated field. Uh, a lot of people have, you know, are kind of mystified about water, water management, and what, what can we actually expect to see and what can we expect the districts to actually do since, as I explained at the beginning, they control all the water rights, all the winter right. rights and all the summer rights. <laughs> got, all roads stop there at their boards. Um, and so Todd, maybe that's a good segue to talk about um, the Deschutes Basin Habitat Conservation Plan. Could you just give us an overview of what that is? I, I know it's gonna be coming out in November. Yeah. Maybe talk to that a little bit. So um, 11 or 12 years ago, when Mid-Columbia Steelhead were reintroduced above the Pelton electric, hydroelectric project down at Lake Billy Chinook, and that was done under negotiation for that relicensing of those dams, um, and at great interest of PG&E and the tribes. Um, the, the districts all of a sudden realized that they had a potential problem. Um, and so they and their attorneys started a lo the long process of applying to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the National Marine Fisheries Service, for incidental take permits. If the, in the, um, the lawful Con, um, execution of their business, they incidentally take one of these species, they want to be protected from it. So that's what that is. And so what the process is, is they apply to the government for the permit and they write the plan. A lot of people think that this is a U.S. Fish and Wildlife plan. It's not. It's a district and the district's consultants plan. They say, we want you to give us a permit and in return, we're gonna mitigate our effects on, and now it's the important species are the Oregon spotted frog, mid-Columbia steelhead and bull trout. And so they have spent a very long time trying to um, put a plan together that would be satisfactory for the government to say, yes, I'll permit that. Um, and these permits are, can be, you know, I think they asked originally for a 50 year one, I believe they're talking about a 30 year, 30 year now. So, the conditions under which that ultimately gets negotiated and permanent will have a, a long-standing effect on how the river gets managed over the next several decades. And so that's what's going on now. They've, they've produced a draft, there was public comment last year. The final drafts in the environmental impact statement will be coming out on November 6th. And what do you think the impact of that survey is gonna be for the region? I mean, what's your initial critique, premonition. I mean, I don't, yeah. we're not placing bets here or anything, but you know, what are your thoughts? 
Yeah, I mean, from what I've seen of the first draft and other conversations, I just think it's going to fall very much short of any significant um, real mitigation for the species that they're getting covered for in the permit. And so particularly the ones that, that we were looking at were Chinook and Steelhead. Well, they removed Chinook from the permitting decided not to get it covered. I think it was probably too hard for them to figure out how to mitigate their impacts on it. Um, but um, if you look at the life cycle histories, the biology of these fish and frogs, and then you look at what the flow needs and the habitat needs and the water temperature needs are for these species. And then you look at what's, what the irrigators are providing for proposing in their habitat conservation plan. There's a huge, huge divide there. Um, so I don't expect that they will have closed that gap from what we saw in their draft a year ago substantially. I think there, there are, I think there has been something, that's what I've heard, we'll see in a couple of weeks. But I suspect if you really just look at, have they done what those iconic fish species need in our region um, to, for their biology and their basic uh, needs, uh, the answer will be no. So, so Todd, if I'm thinking back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast about the senior rights and the junior rights and the push and pull of these things, if there is not enough water allocated for these species, which um, it sounds like that's going to continue to be a problem, especially if global warming continues to shrink the amount of available water, mm -hmm. then where do where do they go to make these concessions? Where will they? I mean, if if the water right seems to be somewhat intractable, then how do they extricate themselves from these obligations? Well, so so what they do is what we've already talked about. If you think, you know, what did I just say? There's two thirds of a district that's fifty thousand acres is in hobby farm or growing grass if they dramatically reduce their water use through incentives, all of that water, a big portion of that water can go to the farmers in North Unit, and then they can, that obviates the need for stored water in Wikiup. We can actually store more there, and then we can release it as we need it for fish and wildlife. And so there, there is a problem of scale. This has to be done at a big enough scale, sharing senior water right holders sharing through incentives that get paid uh, with the juniors who are the primary crop growers in our region and the drivers of our agricultural economy. And then in turn, those um, um, growers in North Unity Irrigation District give up some of their storage for fish and wildlife. Particularly this will solve or go a long way to ameliorating the, uh, the problems um, of the, for the Oregon spotted frog in the upper Deschutes River. So we believe there really is enough water. I mean, it's challenging. It's really a matter of, of using it more wisely, getting rid of flood irrigation, using less water, and, and reallocating the resource to the places that it now needs to be in the 21st century, which is more water for real farms and for fish and wildlife in the Deschutes. Let me, let me just throw a a what if out there, you know, what if, um, or is it possible that through piping, through these dollars that will be invested in piping these canals, and it seems like that train is heading down the tracks, mm -hmm. the, 
will they reclaim enough water from those that project to satisfy the um, restrictions they're going to feel in the Deschutes Basin Conservation Plan? Well, that's a that's a good question. So they're one of the reasons they're not offering very much water in total um, and very quickly is because they say they can't. And they say they can't because they can't get the money for these massive federal projects. I'm saying, well, no, for one-tenth of the cost, you can develop and implement a water bank here that will make a huge difference in the next decade. And then keep the piping going as those as you can get those resources in line. But now you will have a you will have averaged the cost of this conservation, you have driven the cost way down and you will have generated a lot more water a lot quicker. So that's what we're arguing, more water quicker than you're proposing in the plan. And you're saying you can't, the irrigators are saying we can't do more, but they're just hanging their hat mostly on that big pipe solution, which is so expensive. So that's, that's what I'm trying to, uh, I, my hope is that they can really develop an integrated strategy that would actually work in the near term. Laurel, oh, did you have a final question? Oh, yeah. I, was just, I was just gonna ask, um, you know, what is gonna happen? So this, their proposal, the irrigation districts are gonna throw out their proposals and, um, you know, the most important, like the critical time is after that comes out and everyone makes their objections. What is, mm -hmm. what happens then? Like what, what could really stop them in their tracks from, you know, getting the go ahead to just, you know, extricate species till the end of time without getting sued? Well, that, that's a good question. We don't really know what our response or others, we're not the only organization that's looking at it, but clearly, you know, the, lot, the final, the last recourse is legal action. Um, if you just look at the Columbia River today, for the last 20 years, the biological opinions that have been put forward by the federal government to uh, mitigate the harm to salmon species with the federal dams there has been in litigation and it's been, and it's been ongoing. And I, I really hope that we don't get into that kind of interminable um, litigation. But what I do hope is that there's enough of us who stand up and just say, this isn't okay. And that we somehow can get at a settlement table that would enable us to find some, some path forward that's a lot better than the one they will put on the table next month. Todd, we've just got a couple minutes left before the end of the podcast. Is there anything you'd like to say about the basin that we haven't touched on? You know, only that people lose sight of the fact that the Deschutes River is, is like the biggest spring-fed river in the United States. This is, a, this is a national treasure. We're not talking about just any river. And it happens to be in our backyard. And sometimes I think we take for granted these, the resources that are right around us. This is a very, very unique and special resource. And to have that spring water, it's very cold, it's very clean. Um, it's really an amazing resource. And it's really one of the reasons why I fell in love with it and why I want to defend it today. Well, Todd, thank you for spending this time with us. Water issues are, you know, Laurel and I commiserate about this all the time. They're one of the hardest issues that, especially as journalists, we try to wrap our heads around. And uh, <laughs> I think you've done an excellent job of, of getting us 
issue pretty uh, pretty smartly. So well, thank you very much for for engaging in this topic. It is a difficult one. I appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah. This has been the Ben Don't Break podcast. We appreciate you listening and we'll see you next week.